Futures podcast. In this series, we feature critical voices and inspiring examples from the global movement to resist the power of giant corporations and to renew ecological, social and spiritual well-being by shifting towards local economies. In the lead up to COP26 in Glasgow, this episode features a conversation between local futures director Helena Norberg-Hodge and researcher and activist Camila Moreno. Originally from Brazil, Camila has represented civil society organizations at every global climate negotiation since 2008. She is unparalleled, both in her insider experience of the COPs and in her scathing critique of them. In this conversation, Camilla and Helena shine a light on the insidious, corporate-friendly framing of the mainstream climate movement, revealing the top-level negotiations to be a key site for the expansion of global, neo-colonial technocracy. We are left with clarity and a stark choice, that between a human future and a high-tech dystopia. As the climate discussion becomes increasingly high-profile, this episode is not to be missed. Camilla, I'm so glad to finally catch up with you. I always love our conversations and you have a better grasp on the way that the corporate system is shaping our thinking worldwide. And I just so hope that particularly climate activists can learn from you and your experience at all the climate summits for the last 11 years, isn't it, that you've attended all the summits. Tell us what you've seen there. Tell us what you've learned about what's going on in this great and very important climate debate. Uh, Okay, so uh, I think it's interesting to start saying that I come uh, since my childhood from a family that has always been in in the environmental struggle and environmental movement. So I grew up with this uh, awareness and I mean, uh, understanding and fighting I'm from the south of Brazil with uh, what were the old times environmental agenda. Um, And I studied philosophy and law, and I had a a master and a PhD in rural sociology, uh, studying the struggles of uh, in Brazilian uh, uh, rural uh, areas, uh, the impacts of the agribusiness expansion, uh, plantations, uh, GMOs, etc., etc. So uh, I started to follow in this capacity as an academic researcher, but also as part of civil society, uh, NGOs and networks in Brazil. I started to follow the um, biodiversity negotiations in 2006 and the climate negotiations in 2008. And because of uh, it was the policy of our progressive government at that time, members of the Brazilian civil society that were representing coalitions and etc. we got, um, for the sake of transparency and participation, we got the right to receive, uh, to be part of the official delegation. So it's a different color, uh, the badge that you have to attend those negotiations. So in this capacity, I was very um, privileged and uh, lucky 
to be able to join not only the yearly COPs um, that take place during two weeks, but also in May, uh, May, June, the so-called intercessional that actually are going on right now in the weird digital mode of the subsidiary bodies, you know, so the SBs, as they call, SBI and Substance. So those are very, very technical negotiations. So uh, having said that, um, what I have witnessed um, over the past 12, 13 years uh, from the inside, what you see inside, and especially in more closed meetings, in more late hours, um, definitions of what the text is going to look like. And if you look the whole thing, not only the negotiations, but what is the, um, the broader scenario inside those places like the side events and all the lobbying going on, you know, to push forward agendas and languages. What you see is that there is nothing to do with the environment or the, um, the environmental struggle that I was coming from. What you see is a concerted effort, and I have heard this in like quoting, you know, we are uh, re-engineering the world economy. The climate negotiations um, uh, kind of pulled together because all the other environmental conventions now are like hierarchically under it. You no, know, it's like this big chapeau. What it's actually serving is to govern, although they don't have this mandate, the digital transformation. Because one thing that people don't realize, um, most, most people don't realize is that we, when we talk about governing ca carbon, carbon is an intangible asset right now. And it's also a reference for value because the entire world economy is being translated into carbon units. We have, uh, well, we have the carbon metrics, which is my thing, but we have carbon become a commodity. And we have nation states and big corporations all aligning with this agenda of decarbonization, decarbonize the world economy by 2050 and with some landmark on 2030. And, and also, and I think that I'd like to just make it really clear yeah. that what we're talking about is global businesses turning the climate issue into this reductionist idea of carbon which is a tradable commodity. So they have reduced this complex process, not to talk about fossil fuels, which would be quite a clear way of discussing how we can reduce emissions and so on, but reducing it to carbon to create a tradable commodity for profit. And I believe, as I think you do too, that this is not so much happening from a conscious conspiracy by a few people. I think we agree that we see this as a conspiratorial structural marriage between over-specialization, large scale, and it goes back for many generations, the foundations. But sorry for interrupting, just no, putting that's it into okay. slightly different terms. Uh, please continue. Yeah, no, yeah. I think uh, people have to, if you understand, if you lay out in history, you know, uh, you have when you uh, uh, next year we are going to have this landmark 50th anniversary of the Stockholm Conference in 17, 1972 when actually the uh, the multilateral system that was at the time 
quite new because what we call United Nations and the multilateral arrangement uh, we live in, uh, it's from the end of Second uh, World War uh, to now. And we are now actually watching it being uh, profoundly transformed into this new, especially as part of the post-COVID agenda, as uh, a reset towards a multilateral governance of the world that includes state actors and non-state actors in this more broader frame of, of what they call stakeholder, multi-stakeholder capitalism and you know, corporations uh, governing the world as much as nation states. Uh, but uh, just going back to uh, uh, this um, tendency to think, oh, this is a, maybe a conspiracy of some people planning. I think uh, uh, I don't espouse uh, that thinking, but uh, because of a lot of research and reading, and more and more I am convinced of the need for us to revisit uh, uh, what was the cybernetic project that took off when the uh, down of the computer age uh, and this, this um, uh, intellectual and epistemic project to govern the world by numbers, by mathematics, by sensors, by the computing power, uh, by satellites. I mean, this, uh, this is a techno macro uh, technocratic um, infrastructure that has been so ingrained in our way of thinking uh, and is expanded in our daily lives. For example, we don't live more without our cell phones and our cell phones, they materialize um, a vision of how you access the world, they shape your perception. I mean, uh, everybody is aware of how our sense of ourselves, our identity is all uh, connected to the iPhone, which is a micro personal computer. And this has become a, a limb. It's not more uh, a tool that we use. It's very wrong to call it a tool because it's part of our bodily interaction with the rest of the world. So, um, um, also, Camilla, I think it's important there to point out not only that it's almost like an extension of our bodies, but I think more important, where does it come from? It's a mega technological system that didn't come from individual human beings. It came out of the sort of cooperation between the military and big business yeah. to create mega systems that have always been perfectly suited for centralized top-down structures to control and of course as part of the financial casino these tools then you know through algorithms and so on have become blind machine-like concentrations of power and wealth and tragically they were sold as a decentralizing tool and Unfortunately, we saw so much of the environmental and social movements buy into this idea that this is a tool that can really help us speed up our networking, we can become more effective. And I, you know, until now, there has been very little of, you know, any funding or any institutions that have actually sat back to look at this global system and the techno structures to really see where did it come from, who is it benefiting, and to do that in a dispassionate way without blaming particular corporations, particular people, but just look at 
where does the gap between rich and poor come from? Why is it now in every single country? Why are we seeing emissions continue to escalate as we all have this concern for climate? So I think looking at this big picture that you are an expert in, and I think we should mention how many PhDs is it you have coming? No, no, no. I don't like to hear. I like to hear. I don't. I don't think this is um, uh, because I. I am very critical of how you know the um, now, especially under the the new COVID mindset, people are like glorifying this science, forgetting that science is a social construct. And if you read, for example, Thomas Kuhn which is an um, epistemologist that has written in the 70s about the structure of scientific revolutions. Mm. You know, uh, we have this consensus, 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 until this consensus is challenged. And then we have a pass to a totally different uh, paradigm of understanding. Uh, and I, I find very funny now how the consensus on climate change, you know, because we could go on and on. You just said the emissions are building up. I am um, very anti-thinking uh, in terms of emissions because I come, for example, of anti-GMO and anti-monocultures and anti-transformation of Brazil in the one big soy field. And now the whole new generation of soy, you know, that is beyond genetic engineering, because now we are talking about this whole synthetic biology and gene editing stuff, all is sold as the pre pre precision agriculture, climate smart agriculture, agriculture 4.0, in terms of the big uh, game changer for reducing emission, this, this whole push since last year towards, you know, diets, as more important than fossil fuels yeah. uh, to, and then we can of course discuss because there's tons of problems with uh, um, industrial uh, meat and dairy production. And oh, well, coming from Brazil, you know that it's a big thing, but also it's already an agenda that is captured by capital, by you know the startups and all the crazy technologies that want to remake food and turn food compatible with the Paris Agreement, which is, again, we are talking about emissions and we are not going down to what global emissions and we are uh, not going down to address what are local environmental problems, local struggle, national context, national diets, national traditions. So everything, um, and it's... Um, as you said before, you know, uh, how difficult it is to get funding for this kind of work and reflection. I remember you are one of the founding mothers of the uh, IFG, the International Forum on Globalization, that was so pioneer and so vanguard in, uh, for example, Jerry Mender, that I know is your friend, who wrote the four arguments for the elimination of television. You know, and that was so um, visionary in terms that the arguments we had against television and against this mediation of life, human life, through the screens, now are much, much worse because the, 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 the basic arguments that it's not how you use the technology. The technology per se embodies and materializes a political project. So I think those are like very like Aristotle, you no, know, going back to the basic think about the first principles of things, we would need to go back to this very radical thinking in terms of going to the roots 
for example, understanding the birth of the internet connected with the US military and Stanford cluster and Silicon Valley. And I mean, it, you cannot today just erase the history and it started, oh, we have this emergency, leave no one behind. It's so much uh, of apocalyptic thinking and of guilt tripping too, because the whole carbon sins and you can offset your sins. You just buy the credits and then you have this market, the modern market of indulgences, like the medieval uh, uh, market. Uh, and people are not like willing to stop and think. I'm just going to end this because I want to give back the word to you that I was upheld by uh, watching the, this week a documentary called um, what is Genesis 2.0. I think that is on Netflix. That is again about this uh, whole uh, youth um, um, cheering of the possibilities of um, resurrecting extinct species through genetic engineering and what's going on in China. And, and then I keep thinking of how sometimes we have to be, I know you are trained as a linguist and you studied with Chomsky, but how the semantics and semiotics are, are important. You, we have extinction rebellion, that is a legitimate movement and they have their agenda. And then people get with this idea that extinction is horrible. So we need, maybe it's a good idea to de-extinct, to bring back from life. And then we got all this Frankenstein agenda that comes with this. And we don't see the extinction rebellion actually fighting and, and framing it like a centerpiece of their message. Just stop GMOs. GMOs mm. are expanding more and more. We are uh, deciding this week in Brazil uh, and Argentina, the authorization, commercial authorization of GMO wheat. And wheat, since the beginning of the GMOs in our region of the world, has been this kind of myth. No, in wheat, you don't touch because, you know, you can change corn, you can change GMO tomatoes, GMO soy, GMO sugarcane, but wheat had this kind of imaginary, you know, this is the purest, this is the bread, you know, this after all is the European crop. But now they are advancing their frontiers. And I think people, uh, especially young people in the environmental movement should um, uh, read more about what were the struggles that we are forged on, like against nuclear, uh, uh, the arms race and the nuclear waste, I mean, old fashioned concrete stuff that sometimes is not glamorous as the global climate, but it's something you can engage on, you know, in concrete ways. Yes, but I would also argue that if we can get people to look at this bigger picture, to look at this global economic system and what it stands for, who are the players who are the winners and what is happening to democracy as a consequence of it. I do see a way forward whereby the environmental movements realize that exactly the same policies that are horrifically and Frankensteinian ways transforming and manipulating nature in ways that we have no idea of the consequences, with no safety nets, with no serious regulations of any kind. I think there is huge potential for a wake up 
where across the board, from those concerned simply with survival, those concerned with their livelihood, those concerned with what's happening to families and, and social structures, those concerned with the gap between rich and poor, those concerned with democracy, those concerned with climate, with the Amazon, virtually every issue of concern actually has either been caused or exacerbated by this economic trajectory. So I still think there's a potential for coming together over the big picture to create massive people's coalitions. Yeah, uh, uh, so um, it's, it, it's complicated because at the same time, uh, as you said, that we could get all different concerns uh, to realize you know, that uh, there is this economic system that drives us. Um, I see it's not that simple because the psychosphere, the psychosphere, uh, the collective unconscious uh, and the global narrative that is being pushed forward actually let people in a, a very anxious mode, uh, for example, oh, the world is going to end in 12 years, we have this window of opportunity. So it's all this apocalyptic thinking that actually puts people in a state of, okay, let's do, we need to save. You know, they see it, uh, they are kind of psychic hostages of those super tech solutions. As you know, in the IFG and in our work in Local Futures, for years we've been trying to get people to look at the fact that one of the major causes of climate change is the global food system. And it's the combination of imposing bigger and bigger monocultures for export and the transport of food back and forth across the world, importing and exporting the same product, while also flying food across the world to be processed. This horrific waste of energy and contribution to all kinds of pollution is not even being discussed as we talk about climate change. Yes, I do believe that the food systems are, uh, and what we eat, you know, because it's not only the food systems, but everything to eat is a very political thing, because when you can, uh, if you're a consumer and have the choice of what you're buying, you know, actually you have the money and you decide uh, uh, what kind of world you want, you want to see, because if you eat local, you are transforming, you know, your landscape, your local economy, and if you eat global brands and processed foods, etc. We all know that. Uh, but the tricky thing is that food system were never part of the, the climate negotiations. And then the way that they are now in, being inserted and in, in such a rush and with such strong actors, it's because it's already designed to, uh, to have as an outcome what the solution, the corporate solution for the food system. So it's not that uh, we are addressing uh, the need to dismantle this madness of global monocultures and shipping food all the way around and eating a globalized McDonald's diet. Um, is now we have this, you know, the need for, for the financial capital because it's out of thin air, but it's there you know, and wants to invest and generate profits and generate patents to actually disrupt, that's, that's the language that the industry has been using, disrupt the animals as the converters for protein. So they want to produce protein, of course, it's going to be out of something, you know, mostly soy, but also peas and algae 
And even they are talking about, you know, this is so alchemic, uh, you know, transforming, capturing carbon from the atmosphere and transforming it to plastic or protein. So this whole sci-fi world, it's, it could be only a sci-fi world, but then you have this tons, billions of dollars created out of the financial casino that actually pays people uh, to investigate, to research, fund labs, and then you create a reality. Oh, and this is what worries me. But back to the climate uh, thing, uh, who is running the show? I think when you, when you, when you participate in the, in the COPs, what you see is that it's a very complex process, you know, going on for more than since 2000, uh, And the Convention of Climate Change has all different agenda items. And then you have the Kyoto, and now you have the Paris Agreement and the Gold Book. And okay, it's, it's so um, many things happening simultaneously at the same time when you have the, the block of time for negotiations. So uh, very few countries actually can pay to have uh, uh, a body of diplomats that think as a, a state, no, not as a corporate actor, and that are trained and have a very perfect understanding of English because remember, you only have the translation to the five uh, or six uh, UN official languages when you have the plenaries. All the hardcore negotiation goes on in English, even the drafting is all in English. So if you're, if you're not a native, you, you are already uh, you know, behind. But then imagine all the African countries and the small island states, they don't have that money to fly to this conference to pay for hotels, per diems, even if it's needed to stay until late at night in the negotiations to pay for things like a cab. And some people I've seen, you know, leaving uh, the negotiations because they were tired because the food inside the negotiation complex is super overpriced. So all those things, they add up to create um, a context where you, you have a scenery uh, a visually a space where people think there is a multilateral thing going on, but actually very few skilled uh, and, and people that are running the show for quite a long time, and sometimes they stay in the shadows. They are the one that writes, you know, okay, it's very confusing, so I'm going to propose a draft or I'm going to summarize. So it's a kind of a very in fashion now word nudging. There is a constant nudging towards you know, what kind of language is more fitting in. And then you see people that, um, uh, what do you say, the sliding doors or the rotating doors, people that are consultants um, and that at some point they are serving in the, some UN body, UNDP, UNAP, FAO, and then they go to assist a negotiation uh, as a consultant. Then they stay two, three years in some university and then they write a report and then they go back to some think tank. So those are, I think, the global class of technocrats that are not aligned to any specific country. They are the truly globalist. They are aligned to this uh, cybernetic uh, you know, dream that global society and uh, the interactions between society and nature can be ruled you know, through mathematics, computers, and of course, 
this mega giga global surveillance and screening and you know all kinds of track uh, trace and track systems that we are creating because um and with this i end uh, this part as we are now uh, uh, accepting as a society that we can track and trace people because of covid because of uh, pandemics etc et we are track and tracing carbon everywhere and so you sell this gigantic pack package of technology for countries for countries that actually do not have industrial emissions you know they are just they are not part of the problem but now because they are they have been sold that they have the chance to be the part of the solution the condition is that the southern countries take loans new debt or worse now exchange debt debt swapped a foreign debt, by the way, that was illegitimate in the first place, to buy this new archi giant technological package to be surveilled and to prove to the northern countries, because the whole development narrative has been shifted, that we are uh, surveilling or keeping track of our carbon. But this is, this is translated in reality, in drones, we are massively covering forest and rural landscapes in the south with drones. But remember, war nowadays is mainly done through drones. Yeah. Drones, you know, it's, 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 it's a military thing and we are like normalizing it. And I, I get so worried that people are like celebrating drones. They are treating drones as um, like a gadget, you know, something almost like a game that you can play that is fun. You know, this whole thing about gamification strategy is so depoliticized and it is so and, blind. And also with the help of the FAO, selling yes. the idea that young people don't want to farm and they love to be on the screen, they love their games. So we'll give them the screen and they can just play with that. And there'll be robots on the land doing the weeding and the plowing and working. And they'll be linked to drones, which will be linked to satellites, all to monitor carbon, all for the surveillance of supposedly just carbon. No, it's a very, very scary uh, direction. It's, uh, it's, it's obscenely unjust and obscenely unecological. And it is linked to this war machine, you know, to this intense competition between different corporations and different countries. And of course, what it's doing to agriculture is what it's doing to the rest of life. It's all linked to massive monocultures that are systematically destroying the life in the soil that cannot even sustain themselves. It's creating deserts out of land as we had already seen with the monocultures with fossil fuels. And in the meanwhile, what we need is actually more people on the land instead of continuing the path set in the Western world, which is that in many countries now, only 1% of the population is farming and on the land. And now um, we even have you know, things going on like a high level advisor to the treasury in England arguing that we should stop farming because farming produces nothing of significance to GDP. We'll stop farming, we'll import our food. You know, the inherent racism and injustice in that 
we can't be bothered farming because it doesn't bring in enough profit. Let other people do that. You know, it's, we, we are dealing with castles of make-believe and as, um, it's, it's, you know, people are often accusing people in power of being psychopathic. And if we understand that as being out of touch with reality, it's true. Uh, but it's in a different sense. Many of these are, you know, good fathers and um, uncles or whatever, and they, they're not aware of the massive systemic damage that's being done. And they're not aware about how they're locking themselves into a rat race where everyone has to struggle to hold on to a job. When you were the CEO of Exxon, you weren't big enough to survive in this game of mega mergers where everything has to become bigger and faster and more competitive in a rat race to get to Mars and get to those minerals as soon as possible. So you have to merge. And then when Exxon and Mobile merge, there's only one CEO. So we're creating a system where everybody's in fear of holding on to their job, holding on to their power, everyone running faster, everyone more fear filled. What gives me hope uh, is that I am in touch with the grassroots and I am seeing rising movements where especially women at the grassroots are saying enough is enough. They are all the time turning towards nature, towards a more collaborative, towards a more deep knowing of the infinite diversity of every bit of soil, every plant, every animal, the care, and the intelligence and the local knowledge that's required to care for life, be it for other humans or animals or plants, there is all the time this attempt to come back to life. I think, Helena, uh, and you know how I love to, to talk to you, that exactly what you said about, um, you know, uh, what uh, the, the women close to the land, you know, they said enough is enough, they're observing they are uh, rejecting this whole uh, mathematization, this, this transformation that rationality, can, something can only be rational if it is transformed into numbers, into quantified units. Because we have had through evolution uh, and the co-evolution of uh, ecosystems and uh, human societies through and civilizations, through the, the history we know, farmers have selected seeds uh, for thousands of years. And that's how we domesticated species of animals and of seeds. Um, what is going on now, it's, a, it's, 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 it's really a big uh, watershed as I see it. Because humans, and especially since this whole genetics and the DNA and, 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 and how dangerous to an ideological Uh, everything related to gene that you can like uh, genetically profile people and you can choose uh, your offspring like doing in vitro and selecting the best traits actually to uh, it's a kind of a eugenics you no know? because we are dreaming with the uh, with a new um, phase of human existence in the planet where you can enhance humans can be enhanced You can like add superpowers breeding. You can add stuff to your limbs to become uh, um, uh, more uh, powerful. And it's interesting to see how the Para Olympics functions kind of a showcase for these technologies. 
but you can also, as they say now, aesthetically, aesthetically enhance yourself. So it's impressive how much of a capital and of profit is going on on how people are transforming their faces. And I know this is uh, not directly related to, uh, to climate, but it's part of the social context where people are becoming uh, looking like uh, avatars of themselves with not accepting age anymore. It's like aging is something that is like a, a problem of nature. So we need to fix and people are becoming transformers, you know, with faces that are not their faces and doing eyes and lips like this. And, and so if you have, this is becoming normalized in society. This is a very basic thing. Imagine for yours, and this is all given to you by science. You know, you have doctors, doctors who have given the do no harm, Hippocrates, um, uh, Hippocrates oath for medicine, you know, that are injecting and transforming people's face. So imagine, you know, that the same average people, how they can actually un-deprogram uh, uh, un themselves, that all of this science, you know, complex, uh, it's, it's wrong because you sell this idea of superpowers. I think it's something that is quite confusing today is that we talk a lot, a lot about Anthropocene, Anthropocene, Anthropocene. And, there are, and this is like a mantra. But if you look, everything around us is pointing that we are walking towards a transhuman future. Actually, we are walking towards this fusion. That's the plan, you know, merging of humans and artificial intelligence, intelligence of all this blockchain world, of you know, sensors everywhere, kids being raised by Alexas and cities and robots. You know, you are normalizing ex uh, actually a future that has nothing to do with anthropos. We are not accepting our very image. So to challenge um, the infrastructures of our thinking and why we are so blind to the scientific project that uh, um, imposes it itself as the truth. It's, it's a religious, it's a religious movement. You have, it's like we are, so, we have criticized so much the power of the Christian, the Christianity and the Christian church for 2000 years. And now what we're doing is replacing the same thing by this new godly power. You know? And I think very few people are actually uh, willing to engage because of this more broader culture of canceling of not accepting to have inconvenient debates of opposing views, because now it's like we have monocultures, we do have a mono view of what the future looks like. And when you uh, propose ancient futures, and this is why I'm so much in, fell in love with you since the, the first day we met, you know, it's so revolutionary to say that the future uh, does not need to be the progress the future can be going back, you know, because backwardness, it's not at all a problem. Actually, it's going back to be human again. We will have to learn to be human again. And becoming human, the key for me, you know, the very first step is to produce our food, to grow our own food. Because if we allow that our food come from a biofoundry, by a biorefinery that is fusing and producing artificial protein, we are what we eat. 
we will be transformed in some kind of a new species that is completely deformed and fed, you know, daily with this most, this most horrible corporate diet, synthetic diet to fit in a world that is turning people sick. People are becoming addicted to all kinds of medicines because they are anxious. They have, you know, you talk all the time about that. You know, they have nature deficit. They have disorders of all kinds of things. And now, of course, comes the corporate with, you know, all this package of um, patent, um, how do you say, the, uh, the substance in the plant medicine that people are so in love with, but also sold as something that for the people who can buy, they will have access to, to new levels of consciousness because after all, the, the consciousness of our daily world is going to be so harsh to stand that you know you have new commodities on the market that will be something just to numb your humanness so you can engage into this, this topic future. And I think it's very instructive to look back over the last few decades to look at what was sold to us in terms of this wonderful modern food already. We know that big business decided that they needed to create trans fats in order to have the transportability and the shelf life prolonged for food products. We now know that this is toxic for the body we know about high fructose corn syrup. Again, this was not created by people. This was created by a system that had allowed mega industries using mega technologies to start producing for human beings out of institutions that were, were, not, were not human, were not natural. We had over-specialized knowledge linked to larger and larger scale. And these systems have already proven themselves to destroy our health. We know that one of the biggest epidemics we have now is the obesity, diabetes, which now threatens Americans of this generation to die you know, younger than their parent generation did. We've already seen that the lifestyle that this techno-economic corporate system creates is leading to an epidemic of depression and anxiety the future is already there, just looking over the last few decades. And what we're seeing is if we continue in this direction, which we can, I think, in simple terms, describe as anti-nature, we're being taken further and further away from a contact with the living world, from a contact with others in more human scale, genuinely human institutions, that operate at a pace and at a speed, at a speed and scale that is comprehensible for human beings. And that allows us to see the beginning and the end, to have some overview, to understand what we're doing. So I, I see a way in which we don't need to speculate very much about where this new transhuman future will take us. We're seeing an active propaganda that's romanticizing robots regularly now in subtle and more overt ways. We're being told, yeah, the Anthropocene, these humans, they are greedy, aggressive. 
and they've just made a mess of it. Let's hope that the robots will do a better job. We need a very quick wake up and we need, I think in particular women who are more skeptical of this takeover by these techno systems. And it's not about saying no to all technology. We've had technology from the beginning of time, even birds use tools. This is about understanding the difference between tools and technologies that serve intelligent, holistic, wise ways of surviving on this planet, of producing for our needs without destroying ourselves and the planet. Yeah, so it can sound, I think, pretty grim when we talk about what's going on in the world of high tech and science. And what gives me hope all the time is when I look outside of those institutions to the grassroots, to the alternatives, I, I keep getting, um, you know, the, I suppose what makes me more optimistic than anything is seeing that these initiatives that try to reshape what I would call ancient futures trends, ancient futures trends, trying to carry into the future the fundamentals of what both humans and nature need to survive. And one of the most fundamental areas there is diversity, is the respect for diversity, for the infinite complexity and diversity of everything that lives. And that means that we have to have that slowing down and that respect for experiential knowledge, for the immediacy of appreciating whether it's plants or animals or children or the aged in their wholeness and in their uniqueness and in the moment, because everything is changing in the real world in this incredibly rich, beautiful home of ours that is life. So ancient futures is about coming back home to that complexity and that requires more decentralized, localized structures where local knowledge is allowed to flourish, the knowledge that was shaped around the realities of a world of diversity and change and complexity. And uh, yeah. I think it's so profound and so philosophical what you said. Uh, and I think it resonates when I have this rejecting the rejection of this standardizing, homogenizing of faces, because it's it's the idea of you have a monoculture of beauty, you know, of, of this supposed beauty, and people looking the same of what uh, they think it's perfect, kind of mimics the larger project of transforming nature into, okay, let's do a function monoculture because after all, you know, this is what we need. And, and, and this, um, this attention and the value for diversity, it is in every grain, in every cell of ours, you know, that we don't need to have this reductionism. And, and uh, the big tension I see uh, on what you just said is that, Yes, definitely we need the local knowledge, the local knowledge that diverse civilizations throughout history have developed according to different ecosystems and different climates and, you know, all kinds of the different ways that people have chosen to live. Uh, and now we have this global, you know, big abstraction, oh, we have to save 
carbon. We have to save the climate. And we do this in terms of, uh, okay, this is more important than to address the local. And I think that in this tension, uh, we live in a moment right now, uh, and I say since last year when we had this big disruption and we are in this kind of suspended time in history, you know, waiting to see um, what is this COVID uh, wall. Actually, we have already, a, 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 I, I think we do know, uh, a pretty good green picture of what is, is going to unfold. Um, but the, the play, how, uh, how this psychosphere we live in, it's also poisoning. What is this tension between local and global, global and local? that we see that right now, as according to uh, the old ways of dividing the, the society, we have more right-wing populist, populist movements defending the local, the national, etc., and the progressive going for the global, etc., etc. Uh, and, and I think it's such a fake dichotomy because you see more and more polarized um, uh, positions that actually... Uh, as, a, as it contradictory as it sounds, you know, they don't reflect what is going on because taking from what's going on in my country, Brazil, you know, that we have the super polarized, you know, and I think everybody more or less know what's going on up there. You tension the two poles extreme and what you see advancing is actually the corporate structure because while Bolsonaro, for instance, is dismantling entirely the environmental protection and people are burning the Amazon, and then you have the left reacting, genocide, killing indigenous people. Uh, what you see advancing step by step constantly is to replace what we had as a, a nation state, uh, rule of the law, protection for the environment, for this new advanced, you know, private uh, environmental and social governance scheme out of the corporations. So it's kind of a, a you know, we are in a weird moment where corporations are being legitimized as allies. You know, it, this is kind of crazy because if you tension the right to some point, and I do believe that there are interesting things that are, if you look like in a more objective way to what is coming out of the populist uh, right-wing movements, they, uh, although completely misguided in, in many instances, they are uh, resisting to something that they feel uh, it's, it's, it's being taken away from them. This idea of nationhood, of you know, an identity that connects you to the soil. Okay, we have tons of critics to that. But at the same time, you know, uh, the, the wider, the, the, the other side actually, uh, it's not able, uh, I can talk about the left in my country, it's not able to understand and to focus what was the problem with the corporations when we, we were 20 years ago fighting globalization, when we were uh, doing the first edition of the World Social Forum, because now it's so, it's so um, uh, manichaeism, uh, so manichaeum, that uh, the left is partnering with big banks and corporations because they are committing, they have the, you know, uh, the, their private uh, uh, sponsorship of, you know, they can adopt uh, a protected area. No, I don't want Coca-Cola or Heineken to adopt a part of the Amazon. 
I know Bolsonaro is horrible and it's burning, but at the same time, you know, this is, we have to be clear that, you know, corporations are not our best friends, but this is, is becoming a normal way to say, oh, there were the bad corporations from the past. And now there's a new generations of big corporations that are, they want to redeem themselves. They want to clean their past. And I think this is very, I, I would like to hear from you because I think this is a very dangerous move because a lot of people, especially from the younger generations that do not understand, for example, the history of Danone, Nestle and privatize, in privatizing water and deconstructing, you know, breastfeeding and, you know, everything that was normal and to sell powdered milk, to sell water, to sell all the processed food now are like reinventing, rebranding themselves as, you know, the big allies uh, for this uh, post-COVID world. So I would like to hear your thoughts on this. Yes, well, again, I would say it even precedes COVID that there's been this buildup whereby as giant banks and corporations have amassed more and more money and as the environmental crises have escalated and the injustice, the growing gap between rich and poor, the treatment of people of color, this has led to business becoming more and more adept at selling itself as an ally, both to the social movements and the environmental movement. And again, I have seen well-intentioned people employed by Nestle and Coca-Cola, people who are passionate about the environment are brought in to be the interface between those businesses and the movement. So we're in an extremely difficult situation because inside the boundaries of those corporations are genuine, sincere people wanting to do the right thing. What we need to look at there is move beyond the politics of identity. Let's start looking at structures. What are we saying when we talk about a for-profit, deregulated, giant corporation having more power than our governments? Are we completely abandoning any notion of some kind of representation, some kind of democratic structure, we must, again, step back to with clarity, distinguish, first of all, between privatization and, and what we're talking about with regulations and taxes, when we're talking about businesses that are place-based and of a scale that they operate within the boundaries of a, of a country. We have to remember the nation state was part of the problem in the first place. You know, the nation state in many cases was created by drawing artificial boundaries, forcing different groups together that had coexisted in a much more peaceful way. But where we are today, we need to be simultaneously defending the nation state to take back the power from global corporations and, and banks while insisting on decentralizing a lot of power from the nation state to the regions. So we, we've created a sort of monstrous economy and, and we've got to be with clarity, understanding that reducing their power has nothing to do with reducing international collaboration at the grassroots level and even at the national level. 
But you now know, having observed what's happening at the level of the UN, that we have very little hope of anything coming from our national governments or their international collaboration or their appointees at the UN. We see the hope as coming from the grassroots, but the grassroots need to be insisting on capturing their supposed representatives. So we have to have clarity in what we want to see, and we have to have a system of representation from the grassroots and all the time as we decentralize economic activity, as we start creating units of production linked to consumption, where there is some oversight and where experiential local knowledge has a validity and a shared knowledge base, as we start doing that, the task becomes much easier. And this is where I see in the localization movement already huge um, steps, huge in the sense that they demonstrate the potential to reduce pollution, increase meaningful livelihoods, increase genuinely democratic processes, and bring back some kind of sanity, moving away from a world of concepts about nature, about others, to the reality of the complexity, the richness and the diversity, which with it reduces prejudice, the other, when it's a concept of the Chinese are like this, the Americans are like that. This is fertile ground for fear and rampant prejudice. Once you're looking at people whom you know as individuals, this framing starts to dissipate, not always disappear completely, but it's very helpful. Yeah. yeah, no, but I, I want to make some remarks that um, uh, I, I, I agree with you, but I think there is no easy blueprint and no yeah. universal blueprint for this yeah. process, because um, if I would uh, summarize what's going on in the UN, especially in the UN climate negotiations right now, is that the UN, United Nations, as a platform for multilateral governance, actually uh, using all its powers to deconstruct nation states. Nation states are very problematic. Uh, of course, there are different histories of how nation states were formed. You know, if you look at the map of Africa, it's quite uh, uh, geographic, you know, schematic clear, you know, uh, the, the colonial history is inscribed in the map. The formation of Europe is more complex. Latin America, we are just uh, having uh, next year the 200th anniversary of Brazil's independence from Portugal. But uh, my experience coming from a country that is a continental country as Brazil, and it has such a specific history and a, a geographic conformation as a biome, you know, it's very hard uh, to see uh, how much struggle we had. Um, and I'm not here legitimizing the history, you know, but this, the history we have to form Brazil as a unity. And as people, you know, because we have the sense of I am, my nationality is Brazilian, you know. Uh, we still, by the way, we still need in this world of uh, digital IDs, we still have to write, you know, it's important to, to, to tell uh, the system where you were born, you know, it means something. Uh, that the, the climate um, policy, what has uh, promoting more than anything else, is actually this uh, subnational entities, local entities, 
because it, it's it's like breaking from uh, from the bottom the power of nation states actually to govern over a territory. But this is being not done uh, to uh, foster local autonomy or uh, sovereignty. Uh, no, no, no. It's just being promoted in, in terms of a concept and in terms of creating enabling environments, as they say, like reforming legislation to be more receptive and more cozy to the corporations to, to act. So um, this is why I think it's so we are walking on the on the knives, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so complicated to navigate because it's so full of contradiction. It's, I feel, again, we are in this historical moment where the history is so compressed and everything that happened last year, this year, next year, especially, you know, it's like carrying us over what's going to be this next epoch that we are already living in. By the way, <clears throat> Just, just, just say one thing. Okay. In two, 2023, <clears throat> yeah. uh, in two years' time, we will have, according to Paris Agreement, the first global stock take. And this idea of a global stock take actually is a launch, uh, a process where all the, um, the countries are doing their homework through the NDCs, the National Determined Contribution, that is like in, in, um, in, 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 in a nutshell, how you transform public policy into business plans, how you offer your country as investment opportunities. And uh, the big process that is going to start on 2023 with the global stock pick is uh, a planet world economy. We criticize the Chinese for having their five-year plans and like the Soviets economy for planning the economy. But what we are doing with decarbonization pathways pathways is actually planning and aligning all the economies. This is for the sake of people? No. This is for the sake of environment? No. This is for the sake of having predictable environments and forecasted scenarios to profit and to corporations. And this is so clear when we look, you are taking the power of nation states as complicated as they are, and as specific and diversity as they are, to just give, a, create a platform. We talk so much about, about platform capitalism, to create a platform for corporations to rule. And I yeah. think this is like the, the, the structural uh, process we would need to really see, you know, make out, to, to, to see the climate negotiations as naked as they are, as putting forward this agenda. And I, I think, I think again, you know, with our work in the International Forum on, on Globalization, we were seeing how this process of trade treaties in the name of avoiding another world war, in the name of avoiding another depression, was actually handing over more and more power to global corporations and banks. We've now seen how the entire environmental movement and particularly the climate movement has served to centralize corporate power and profit even more. We've seen how the UN, unfortunately, as a structure, has ended up servicing this process of centralized economic power. It looks, I think, pretty clear that COVID is taking this another step. 
that COVID is threatening to hand over even more power. And this time it's particularly frightening because it's into the hands of the high tech companies along with big pharma. So exactly, it's this clarity about the centralization of economic power that we have to look. And we have to understand that very often breaking down into smaller political units can actually be very dangerous in this climate. Even many of the campaigns that have helped native people to get their land rights back, in the climate of this global de facto commercial government, decentralizing the political power in this way serves those corporate interests. They can now go into a region and talk to a tribe maybe of 100,000 people or less and offer maybe only half a million dollars for mining rights or forest rights, even less money. So absolutely, we have to be really clear about what we're talking about. But remember that what we're talking about with localization is economic localization. Anywhere on this planet where people can come together to create the safety net of developing and diversifying their local economy, particularly the food, the fishery, the forestry, to provide for their own needs, you're beginning to create a strength that can withstand the manipulations. And when that's accompanied with very, very strong, big picture activism campaigns to really bring home the threat of that corporate empire, that's where I do see still potential. And I think that when we see the swing to the right, even in Scandinavia, you know, in Hungary, in India, Bolsonaro, Trump, what we're seeing is people are being led to believe that the power is with the central government. They're being led to believe that it's their government that is the problem, and it's partly because of the overregulation at the local level. So again, it's this clarity between what's going on in terms of political power concentration as a consequence of the global economic concentration. What can you say to our audience today about your advice to all of us? What can people do? What's the best thing that they can do to try to make the world a better place? Where should they start? I think the, 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 for me, the ground zero to start is to choose whether, because now it's very clear, either you are a pro-human future and you believe in humanity and all things human are important to you, or you want to go enter into the, this topic uh, post-human path. That's the big division, you know, for me, there is no, and this is, I'm, I'm being very strong. And if you are pro-human, if you believe in humanity and uh, we are mortals, we get old, we need each other, we need to combine generations and uh, our life doesn't, uh, doesn't depend to be mediated by this kind of thing, to teach us how to feed ourselves, how to breastfeed, how to build habits, you know, this whole managerial man, man, management of daily lives, you know, that is becoming obsessive for people. If you want just to live and enjoy the moment and contemplate nature and, and be solidarity, there is a path. And in this path, 
forget about left and right because those um, those tensions, this division, it's not actually allowing this lens. It's not allowing you to see clear who are your allies because many times you have people in the so-called right that actually are maybe confused, but they are defending humanity. And many times you have people that say they are progressive and left and you know all kinds of what is uh, in fashion to say today. And they are you know, uh, allied with the corporate world, with the dystopia technocracy. So I think now this is very clear. And once you have chosen the path, what you want for the future, if you want to give away for the future for the big tech corporation that's, you know, that's, you are not with me, then we can sit and find common ground. Because uh, other than that, we get confused by the kind of tags that are being thrown on people. I think uh, uh, maybe this is not a good note to end, but you mentioned the div uh, uh, identity politics. And again, I think it's so confusing because of course racism has been a problem, but the way that you, know, you brand uh, the identities now and uh, corporations again you know, are proclaiming themselves as the ones that are going to help us to get equity. You, know, you are not looking the full picture. The full picture is the big market on where, where you are financializing identities. You can invest in human capital. And this is so perverse in terms that if people don't have a way to affirm an identity, they don't have value in this global casino. People are humans and that's it. If you are human, you are you know, part of a movement. If you want to dance with robots, you know, that's, that's a, a very divergent and by the way, contradictory path. Uh, and I, I think we have to draw the red line very clear because, you know, there is, we are in a point, uh, especially with this gene editing and synthetic biology, where we are very rapidly walking towards a, a, a known uh, a tipping point. That's the real tipping point where there is no return, you know, once we just mess up with our DNAs and, you know, we start to this bank. So I think this would be my final, my final words. Well, I love that. I think that's a very good image. Do you want to dance with a human being or do you want to dance with a robot? What kind of future do you want? I love it. Thank you, Pamela. Thank you for your incredible knowledge and wisdom. And we want to listen to much, much more. So we need to have more interviews. Thank you. Lots okay. of love, Camilla. Have a beautiful Sunday. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye. Join the movement to oppose the expansion of corporate technocracy and to rebuild more human scale, genuinely sustainable economies. Subscribe to this podcast and join the Local Futures mailing list at localfutures.org. And if you're feeling riled up and ready to take action, check out our newly released Localization Action Guide, which describes hands-on strategies to rebuild democracy and withdraw dependence on the fossil fuel-based global economy at the local level. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Local Futures podcast.